This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to be able to assemble today and to discuss a super important topic of discipleship. I pray that your spirit would be abundantly present in inspiring our thoughts and our minds. May our words be your words, and may the hearers hear everything that you need for them to hear to be effective disciples and effective disciple makers. Thank you again that your promise is true, that you will indeed do greater things than we have asked, for it's for your service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's see. Okay. I mentioned earlier the idea of opening your home to somebody who's an international student. It's not a very easy thing sometimes. It changes your privacy. It completely changes the family dynamics. But when you think of what Jesus said when he said, go make disciples, he didn't say, go make converts. Go spread some pamphlets. Go hold a set of meetings for 10 days. Go be nice to people occasionally. <laughs> he said, go make yeah. disciples. Yeah. And I believe that's much more like saying, Go be parents, because it's not a one-day event. It's not a one-month event. It's not even an 18-year event. It's a lifelong commitment to your children. So when we lead people to know Jesus, he's asking us not to just introduce them, but to disciple them. Mm. We're going to explore that together with you. This couple, Ron and Kathy Bush, decided to open their, their home. One year, a Japanese student came. He was an atheist. He gave them hassle about having worship in the house, about many things that they did. He heckled them. He really was not a very good guest. They were frankly kind of glad when he had to go on his way. Uh, the next year, however, another Japanese young man came, and he was much different, very open, listened carefully to what they had to share. They shared with him the gospel. He became a Christian. He was baptized. And now he's a Seventh-day Adventist pastor in the San Francisco area, leading other people to Christ. Amen. They kept in touch after that year. The other guy, well, he came back and visited another time. And though he didn't become a Christian, he thanked them for treating him so kindly, despite his rudeness. The discipleship of one person done well has the potential to multiply in an incredible way. We want to look at Jesus' plan it's very short, it's very simple. Would you read it for us, Dee, as we, as we think about it afresh, something very familiar, but full of meaning, full of answers for Jesus' strategy. Jesus says, go therefore, this is Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right, there's a lot that we can unpack in that, and we'll come back to it in a minute. I believe that Jesus actually tells us his three major methods for making the disciples right in that text. But for now, let's just look at his idea of not just going and making converts. He could have said, go and uh, baptize, and left it at that. Or he could have said, go and teach, educate people. But he didn't. It was something deeper. It was something fuller. The multiplication is picked up in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 
says, these, uh, the things that have, you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So who's writing? Who's Paul? writing to Timothy? Paul. Okay, and he's writing to Timothy, and he's asking him to share things with, to commit them to faithful men who will be able to share with others. He has a four-generation approach, like great-grandfather influencing grandfather who touches father who also touches the son. There is a clear, special, committed passing on that we seldom do. Some are great preachers, great teachers, great Bible teachers in the homes or other types of effective ministry, but they're all alone. They're just good one-man show, one-woman show that's out there very strong and they make a difference. But very few go on to take others and mentor them to train them, to take somebody alongside them so they can catch the vision and they can learn. Even fewer say to that individual they take with them, what I am doing for you, you will soon be doing for someone else. So watch carefully because in a little bit, I will be taking someone else and you will be taking someone else and the two of us will be doing it in separate places. In the narrative of Scripture, Paul learned that from Barnabas, by the way. Barnabas was doing work in um, Antioch, and after Paul was converted, he went down to where Paul was, picked Paul up and brought him to Antioch to continue the work there. Ellen White says that Paul, being believed in by Barnabas, further convinced Paul of the call that God had given him to reach the Gentile world. It, it's a huge question. Where yeah. would Paul have been had Barnabas not stepped in? We, we give the credit to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus Christ, but God has chosen to use human instruments to make an incredible difference so that they can be effective yeah. multiplying servants. If we were to follow this plan, if we were to look at this and, let's see, and contrast two different ways, we can see that if, if you decided in this year, 2016, that you would go out and lead two people to God in this year, that would be exciting, amen? We've been challenged to do that. But if you did that for 30 years, you would have led 60 people to Christ. Even more exciting, uh, 30 years of faithfulness. Can you imagine in heaven being able to talk and pray and share with those 60 who are like your own children? However, if we follow that method, it's going to be a long, long time until Jesus returns. We need something much greater because we have around 3 billion people who are waiting for us right now. So if instead you decided that you would lead two people to God in one year, and help them be real disciples of Jesus so that they also could lead two people to God each year. And then you taught them, like Timothy taught the faithful men, to do the same for others. What would happen in 30 years? Let's have a little math here for a moment. First year, there'd be three of you, three disciples, two that you'd help, but there'd be three disciple makers. Second year, each of you do two, you'd have six. But then you can add that six to the previous three. In the third year, you'd be up to 18. Fourth year, 54. Fifth year, 162. Sixth year, 486. You've just planted a good-sized church. Amen? You are discipling. You are making disciples. But it's not done. We want to move up towards the 10-year time. Let's see. Seventh year, eighth year, we're up to 4,000. Ninth year, up to 13,000. Tenth year, up to almost 40,000. This is multiplication. Now granted, some are not going to do that. Some are going to fall aside. Jesus lost Judas. 
but that kind of a commitment. Go ahead and go on there. 11th year, we're up to 118,000. 12th year, 354,000. By year 13, we break the 1 million mark. Amen? What happens after there? By year 14, 3 million, 15, 9 million, 16, 28 million, 17, 86 million. 18th year, who? 258 million. And now, by the time we get to year 21, we haven't even reached year 30, where the guy down the street is still working towards 60 converts, we reach almost the 7 billion mark. It just helps us to see, even though it kind of seems unrealistic or out of our rational way of thinking, that Jesus has a way of doing it incredibly, incredibly beautiful. So, so what does it mean to make a disciple? What is it that, that we are looking at? What is a disciple? Well, how will we know? Where are we going to find out? How are we going to understand what Jesus is wanting to do? We have in our hands Jesus' great manual. Come on in. Glad to have you come on in. There's plenty of seats up here. Um, we're talking about Jesus' multiplication method of how to see the work finished in the world. And Jesus has not left us to wonder. He has said, go make disciples. And he has given us a manual in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we can simply open our Bibles and begin to study what is a disciple of Jesus. So I invite you in the year 2016 to take one of those Gospels and just begin to read slowly through and ask yourself the question, am I a disciple of Jesus? Really? Truly? What does it mean to follow Christ? So we're going to explore some of those, and um, I want to give you permission. I'm kind of just got a, a track here where I'm headed and going kind of fast, kind of quick. But if there is something that comes to your mind, raise your hand, ask a question, share a comment. Dee is doing the same. I've asked him to do that because he could be doing this whole presentation himself. He loves this topic. <laughs> And so I've said, interrupt me, because we haven't, you know, broken it down exactly who says what and where do we go. So I want to give you the same permission. We are students, we are disciples at the feet of Christ, asking how do we finish this job. So one of the things Jesus said, as I've looked and tried to find the ones where he says, here's what it means to be a disciple, is that it means having a vine and branch close relationship that bears fruit with him. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. We often talk about how Jesus called the disciples and commissioned them to go and preach and heal the sick and cast out evil spirits. But there is something that he said before all of that. It's in Mark chapter 3 and verse 13 and verse 14. Should you read that for us, Steve? Yeah. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Don't you like that word there? He called those to himself that he wanted. He wanted them. He wanted to be with them, to be close to them. Now, of course, he wanted everybody. But in his human incarnation, he could only really do justice to about twelve. And so he took them and he brought them to be with himself that they might be with him. Jesus doesn't just want to use you to reach the world. 
He wants you with him for eternity. Amen. He would miss you forever if you're not there. Just like we would miss a brother, a sister, or a child if they weren't there. And so Jesus would say to Mary and Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing, to sit at my feet, to be with me, to be close to me. Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you spending meaningful, impacting time with Jesus in Bible study, prayer, and heartfelt worship? It's one of those things with Martha. Martha was doing good things in that situation, right? She was longing to serve, but she lost sight of the greater importance of ensuring that she was listening to Jesus at his feet continually. In fact, she thought that was just laziness. You need to be doing. You cannot do effectively without having that abiding connection that Mary understood. And you never hear of vines that are only attached one day a week. Right? No, no produce is going to last on a vine that only has some form of connection one day a week. It's an abiding, continual connection because you need continual nourishment. Does that make sense? Um, it's pretty practical, right? Hang on there just one moment. Now, if we had a couple hours to go slowly through this, we would just go through and really ponder and think, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Am I one myself? But because today we're looking at the idea of reaching out, we're not looking at personal discipleship, we're looking at discipling the nations, discipling the international students at your university, the refugees that have just arrived in your community, the immigrants who have been there for quite a while but still have not integrated, are not your close friends, perhaps. So we're going to pause on each one. After that question, am I a disciple of Jesus? Then we're going back through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to say, how do we make disciples? How did Jesus do that? So somewhere through 2016, maybe you've finished Matthew, and you say, I think I understand a little more what it means to be a disciple. Then move on to Mark and say, now how did he make disciples? And begin to do that and share it with someone else. And then after you've done that, say to them, it's your turn to help someone else and start moving through Luke to see how it multiplied and went on. Everyone is born into the kingdom a missionary. So before we go on there, what did you just say? Everyone is born into the kingdom a missionary. That's what God intended. So whenever you are converted into the kingdom of heaven, it's with the intention of you yourself being a missionary. Amen. Yeah. So it's not just the Griswold family who spent 16 years in Southeast Asia that are missionaries. It is you. Jesus gave his great commission to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth to all the disciples. And some of them took a while to leave Jerusalem. In fact, he had to kind of kick them out. But Jesus is asking us to have a heart for the unreached people groups, the ones he's waiting on before he comes back, so that nobody says that's someone else's job. Not that we all have to go over there, but by our money, by our prayers, and especially by our outreach right here to this mission field that he has sent to America, we can take up and fulfill that great commission. With this first one, as you are discipling somebody from another background, another religion, you will find that this idea of a relationship with Jesus is something unique, at least for many religions. I know with Buddhism especially, the idea of a relationship with the Buddha is not really a part of it. To follow what the Buddha taught, to follow his example, to seek to emulate who he was, but not to have a close relationship with him. So here we are invited to a close, intimate relationship with the King of Kings. And as we share that, even the understanding of the Bible, for many, scriptures are holy things. You, you chant a, a verse, a phrase, to try to help yourself have better luck. 
you um, may not even understand what you are reading, but it's still something very holy and very important. So the ideas that we have to disciple people, to help them to know Jesus for themselves, are often unique and special and will take time to share. Yes, let's go ahead to the next one, number two. We have a handout, by the way, that we'll give you at the end. We'll stay engaged like this together, but something that if you're not capturing all the, all the verses or whatever, there's a good handout that will be helpful. And I'm jumping around also just because of the flow of thought that I think will be more helpful in the time we have. What else did Jesus say about being a disciple? Let's look at John 13, 34, and 35. This is a good one. John chapter 13, picking up in verse 34. You'll know this one. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you do what? That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Yeah, that's as Jesus loves you. Not just like a form of tolerance, like the thing that Jesus is wanting to empower and enable us to do is to live in us and to love people like he loves us through us. That's substantive, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. Have you said that recently? You know that person? She loves me just like Jesus would love me if he were here. (laughs) Have you said that recently? Has someone else in the church said that recently about you or me? That's what is possible through the righteousness that comes by faith. Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory, complete in Christ. This is what we're praying for. This is what we are to be seeking for. Who am I struggling to love and forgive? Am I caring for my family members, that honorary person in your life, as Jesus would? And then this is what we are extending. This is what we are inviting people, not merely to understand about Sabbath and the state of the dead and the sanctuary before they're baptized, but to actually love like Jesus did. Wow. That's a high call. I could spend an hour just on Matthew 18, but Matthew 18 is by far one of the most clear points that Jesus made on the topic of unforgiveness. In short, it's keeping people out of heaven. Jesus does not mince his words. And I don't say that as any form of trying to be cruel or mean, but it's that harmful because it's so contrary to the character and nature of heaven. The two cannot coincide. And so Matthew 18 is, is probably one of the clearest texts that I've seen on that particular topic. And we'll just leave it at that. But check out Matthew chapter 18 because time just won't permit. And then jumping to John 17 where Jesus said, if you will love one another and come into unity as a body of believers... Yeah. It will be so powerfully convincing to the world that they simply will know Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. So this is where he calls us and invites us as disciples. Let's go ahead to another one. Let's jump back to um, one number four. If you have, um, turn to Luke chapter 14, verse 33. In this picture from a set of lessons we have for Southeast Asia, we see the rich young ruler. And we know that Jesus asked him to sell everything that he had, come and follow him. But Jesus took the same phrase and turned it to an entire crowd of people that were following him. And what did he say? Luke 14, verse 33. Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
I want to add one thing. In Mark's account, I like it even better because with, when it comes to the rich young ruler, it says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Amen. Then he told him the hard thing. This has to go because it's ruling. He actually listed all the commandments except for the tenth, covetousness, of, of the human side of the tablet, how you love your fellow man. And he never said that because that was getting to the point of what the guy needed. He left it out intentionally. But then he ends it by saying, come and follow me. See, even when Jesus says statements like this, it's because he loves you and it's because he wants you to follow him. But if this thing isn't dealt with, you can't. You understand? That's the only reason he would mention this. He's not looking to remove your happiness. He realizes that this would keep you from being fully his and most effectually used in his service. That's why it's mentioned. Go ahead. Many times we try to reason ourselves around this text. And yes, there are other texts in the Bible, both in the Proverbs and also 1 Timothy 6, where the picture of Christian finance is filled out in a very great and beautiful way. But you still cannot get around this dynamic, radical statement of Jesus where he puts it very clear that the heart must completely forsake the things of the world, the possessions, the wealth that we all are attracted to. And especially, I think, in American culture, are caught up as our very God, the very thing that grabs our heart and pulls it away from the lifestyle of love, of following Jesus to the great needs of the world that he has called us to be part of. So when we are making a disciple of someone who has come to our country, we must consider carefully, a true disciple has forsaken those things to follow Jesus. Why is this crucial? Well, I think many times the refugees, I think of specific friends who are Korean refugees who have come to America. Many of them lived in the mountains of Myanmar or Burma. Their lives were fairly simple, not a lot of, of wealth. Um, and then they lost much of that in the war years as they fled to the refugee camps there on the border of Thailand. Living there is also a huge struggle in the camps. You, have, you don't have the freedom to come in and out. You're not own, owning what you have or able to increase what you have. So finally, when the door opened in the United States about eight years ago for 70 to 100,000 people to come from Myanmar, what a joy, what an excitement, and yet what a struggle. They land here, they have about three months to get a job before the government help runs out and they have to begin paying back their ticket to the government. They're trying to survive, many of them working in factories where it's difficult, maybe one person supporting six or seven in the house, and so their vision is on survival. Then you get past that hump and you see what everybody else around you has and you realize what your ability to work hard can do in America and you begin to set your sight on that car, on that house, on the same American dream of everyone else. And the close relationship that you had with Jesus as a Seventh-day Adventist in the hills of Myanmar, as our friend shared with us on the first day, can begin to slip away and go and soon be gone. So it is our duty as those who are discipling them and reaching out to them to help them know this is a false god. This is not the Savior. America is not paradise. And Jesus has a better way. Amen. A part of this call of searching and asking ourselves is so that we can effectively love and help those he has put in our hands. The, uh, there's a quote here that Scott and I looked at the other day that I had in my notes. This is from a man named Robert H. Gundry. He says that Christ did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. <laughs> 
Did you catch that? Wow. Let me read that one more time. That Christ did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. <laughs> um, K.P. Yohannan, a, an Indian who started the ministry Gospel for Asia, um, had an awful experience when he came to America because he was just sure this is the Christian bastion of the West. I can't wait to get here. And he fell into depression when he realized the consumerism that existed in America because he was just sure it would be different. And people from overseas, they do run into that. And even worse so, they fall into it too by our example. So keeping that in mind in our uh, own practices certainly is, is a huge thing to keep in mind. Amen. Let's go to the next one. Jesus had more to say about what it really mean, meant to be a disciple. In Luke 14, as he's responding to that multitude, uh, verse 27, let's read, let's read there as well. Luke 14, 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So... Jesus didn't just call people away from material desires. He called them away from all selfish desires. In fact, to put him above any desire that we might have. So here we are in America with just about everything we could possibly want. And so we need to be asking the question, does my entertainment lessen my desire to be with Jesus? Wow, what does that mean? You know, there's whole seminars around here about that and dealing with that. But we must be challenging ourselves because many times we do not see. And if we are going to rightly disciple others, we must be discipled by Christ. Mm. Does what I eat and drink make my body stronger, my mind clearer, and help me live longer to serve him? Mm. The call is high. In another area, Jesus says right back in verse 26 here. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, this is probably one of the most difficult texts to read in Southeast Asia. In fact, I don't think I've read it a whole lot of times. I prefer to go for the one in Matthew 10 where it says, love father or mother more than Jesus. Do not do that. You know, that, that is really what Jesus was wanting to communicate but he recognized there was something so serious going on in our human relationships that unless he would call us to hate them, at least in that situation with that crowd, we wouldn't get it. We wouldn't wake up to the fact that we really, really love people more than we love God, more than we love what is right. Let me give you an example. I have a friend named Sang. He was, he's from Laos. He came to America with a, a large family, brothers and sisters, his parents. And in the Laotian, the Laotian culture, as in throughout Southeast Asia, you owe your life to your mother and father. Amen? Right? I think we forgot that some countries. Uh, we owe our life to our mother and our father. So every year there's a time when you bow down to them, when you thank them, when you ask for forgiveness, when you recognize that you would not be here without them. Well, when Sang began to learn the gospel of Jesus through Terry West and some others there in California, he was excited. He found the Jesus, the God, the purpose of his whole life. And he began to give himself entirely to Jesus. But his parents were not happy. They were Buddhists. They were not pleased with what was going on. And they urged him to stop, to leave it alone, to follow the tradition of, of their elders and what they had come from. But he couldn't stop. And so he was baptized. He pressed on. 
And then he decided he wanted to be a pastor. Now that was just too much. Mom had plans for him. She knew what she wanted him to be. And it was not making the kind of money a pastor would make. So there they were in California with a huge dilemma. She became so angry and upset that she said, if you don't stop this direction, well, she just left it there. But one day, she was so angry that she, without clearly really thinking, decided to kill herself. She was so upset. He found her in the bathroom. Everybody else was gone. The house was locked. He looked through the window and saw that she had, she, that she was, had overdosed on something. He broke the window, came in, rescued her, took her to the hospital, and she survived. When he first walked into that hospital room, she still would not look at him. She was angry with him. She was upset. But over the next few weeks, as he visited and cared and ministered to her there, she began to recognize true love in her son. She's now a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, living in Michigan. I visited with her. I've met her. So is her husband. So is the rest of the family. This is why Jesus said, you must love me more because you try to love your people, those who are around you, but they are only going to lead you away unless you love me first. And if you love me first, you will show them what really will save them, what really will help them. So I, I share that story because as you seek to disciple international people, you are going to come up to the fact that they are way more connected to yeah. their family than perhaps you and your culture ever thought of being. That connection is extremely crucial, and that is where we should do our best to try to reach the influential members of the family, perhaps in many cultures, the father, the husband, and they in turn then can reach out to the rest of their family. Hispanics, like in migrant camps, it's the mothers because they have all the time with the children and they're alone a lot of the time because the men are in the fields. She's got a question or a comment here quickly. Thank you. So um, I don't know if it's... not, irrele- not relevant for the moment, but um, you know in the case of the story when the man want, wants to follow Jesus, but Jesus says to him, um, well, I mean, he, afterward he says, can I go bury my father? Um, and then Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. I don't know if it's relevant at the moment, but it, it reminded me of that. Yes. Yeah. It was. Jesus was giving the cost of discipleship to him. Another guy comes up and says, hey, man, I'll go wherever you want. And Jesus says, I don't even have a house, man. <laughs> Do you know what you're getting yourself into? And it seems like David Platt, in his book Radical, Taking Back Your Faith on the American Dream, he mentions the fact that the disciples had to be frustrated because every time the crowds got big, Jesus would say things like, you know, you need to eat me. (laughs) And they're like, no, don't tell them that. Now they're going to leave. Jesus was looking for sincere-hearted disciples. And Ellen White even says the reason why he dispersed crowds when that would happen was because there were going to be people who weren't fully in. And whenever Jesus would go through the cross experience, they would lead the disciples themselves astray if they were allowed to continue in that instance. This is why we're dealing with heart issues right now, because everything that you do in ministry, these things will be reflected eventually in that sense. And everything that we've told you, because we won't have time to go through a lot of what we wanted to, everything that we're telling you about our own individual experience is what we're striving for for them. So we have to ask the question, am I a disciple, to in turn know how to disciple someone else. So these, pra- these, these principles apply not only to us, but to the people we're investing mm-hmm. in. So you'll still get your money's worth, I promise. Mm-hmm. So, so if you are concerned about 60 people that you might lead to Christ over the next 30 years, how much more if you know it's going to multiply in yeah. such a great way? What you are to them is what they will be to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus also spoke about loving him even to the point of death. 
we, we see it right there in, in Luke chapter 14. Yes, and even your own life also. In Matthew yeah. 10, he says, A disciple is like his master. If they have done this to me, they will do it to you. He called people, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to die. Yeah. He invited them to come and die. So that we usually take figuratively. You need to die to your selfishness. But the reality is that many of the people that you may lead to Christ, when they return to their countries, may literally die for Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We, right now, in our community here in Louisville, have many, many Somalians. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, there is the largest presence of Somalis outside of the country of Somalia. Um, they have come because of the incredible war, the incredible heartache and difficulties of that country. It is the second most dangerous country for Christians in the world, right after North Korea. But here they are by the thousands, finally able to choose Christ for themselves. You said to me just a moment ago, one of the people you met yesterday, right, that you gave well, my language, my life card, was a Somali individual. This is an incredible opportunity. As we share with them, they in turn may return to their own country, may have the opportunity to share with relatives, and may give their life for Jesus Christ. Today it is not just Christians who are dying for Christ, it is Muslims who have become Christians who are dying by the hundreds and hundreds around the world. God is doing a thing like never before among Muslim brothers and sisters. And K we can be a part of it right here. K.P. O'Hannon, there's, a, there's a, some resources I want to share at the end, but he has a book called Revolution and World Missions. You can get it for free on gfa.org. Uh, he and David Platt are not Seventh-day Adventists, unfortunately, so their view of eternal torment and so on is not right. But their idea of missions and the radical call to discipleship are two of the best resources I've seen. He says that countries can close their borders to Westerners, but they cannot close them to their own people. And we have to understand this and take hold of it. Somalians can get into Somalia. I can't. I cannot get into North Korea. Um, but so th these are things, this is why what we're talking about today is so important in this context. Amen. And why I'm so excited to work with ASAP Ministries. Try not to make this sound like an advertisement. But the reality is, is that we need to be behind the national people, the local people. There is a place for missionaries to go from one culture, clear over the world, the other side of the world, to another, where there are no national people to take the job and go. But where there are, we must partner with them and empower them. And so that's what we do with ASAP Ministries, is we find local people, help to train them, encourage them, pray with them, find support for them, and then they can go and do it. Even though we learn Cambodian and Thai, I'd much rather listen to them than me when it comes to preaching the gospel. So there's a power in, in doing that. In evangelism, it's around 568 that it begins. There's a section called The Stranger Within Our Midst, or The Stranger in Our Midst. And she says that not all of our money should be sent overseas for mission work. There's a work to be done here that's just as important. We're not negating foreign missions at all. We're called to make disciples of all the nations. But she says, when you've given resources to foreign missions, do not think your duty done. In another place, she says that the people in China are no less important than the people who are here on our shores who can go home and reach them. So there's a balance that she gives in this idea of us having people that have to go, but also training nationals who can do a work there. And she says that the work here is just as important as that work, which means that you yourself can be involved in work that will change the world. I think it was this morning that Taj Pakleb mentioned it that like, the work that God can call you to do is no less significant than the work of somebody else. If you're doing what God has asked you to do, well, imagine you can actually reach 
you can have a global impact evangelistically in the United States of America. You can do that. That's the whole point of this whole seminar that we've been doing. That actually exists. In the Iowa, Missouri conference, we have Elder Dean Corden, who is extremely forward and radical in his recognizing this is a huge opportunity. So much so that they have hired someone just to oversee this work in their conference, trying to encourage emerging immigrant groups. And they have ministered, especially in the refugee camps um, in India and Nepal. And they have people who are in America that they've reached out to, who are on their cell phones, reaching people in the refugee camps over there. Back and forth, it can go in a powerful way. When we look at this radical call that Jesus has given us to be his disciple, to love him more than anything in this world, and truly follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we can look at it and we can say, like the disciples did after the rich young ruler, then who can be saved? <laughs> wow. That is where the beauty of what Jesus also said about a disciple in this next one is extremely helpful. Mm. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, we'll just read the two verses, he gives us another little piece. He only about 10 times in the Bible says what it means to be a disciple. Mostly he just lives it and shows it through the disciples. But about 10 times he gives a specific phrase, and here's one of them. Let's read John 8, 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen. We may look at that and we say, okay, abide in your word. Yeah, that's what you're saying. All these things he's asked us to do, it's too hard. But when we recognize the power of his word, it's a totally different thing. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus said to the leper, be clean, and he was clean. And Jesus says to you, come, follow me, and you follow if you have faith. The word of God, like in this picture where the centurion came and he said, you don't need to come to my house, I'm not worthy. Just speak the, the word. word only and your servant will be healed. That is the power of the word of God. Whether he gives you a promise or he gives you a command, there is the same creative energy to recreate you into a new creation, to give you the ability to do all that he has asked you to be as a disciple. So to abide in his word means the truth will set you free. Amen? Amen. Isn't that beautiful? This is the message of righteousness by faith that was begun to be proclaimed in the 1800s, in the 1880s in particular, that we are told will bring the power of the Holy Spirit and will finish the work. I've heard it said that all of his biddings are enablings. Amen. That God is not irrational in asking you to do things that he knows good and well you can't do. The beauty of it is when we submit ourselves to Jesus, Jesus empowers us to do the things that we couldn't do. I used this definition two days ago, um, maybe yesterday, but two seminars ago, that she says, what is justification by faith? And this is the faith I live by, 111. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in doing, it's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their own nothingness, then they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When you recognize your inability to do so, Christ can, in, in that very moment, when you end, Christ's work begins in you to do what he's asked, to do and to will according to his good pleasure. Amen. Amen. Take a breath here for just a moment. Yes. Yep. Yep. We're going to pause. There, we can't possibly get through all of this. And so we're going to just say there's more. Obviously, there's more. We will never be done 
learning and growing this side of heaven, and even then we'll be getting, begin a whole new adventure of learning with him. But I want to come back to what we simply said earlier, which is begin in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and begin to ask, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Am I really? And then like Peter, this is the part I want to share just briefly. We look at Peter and we see his life. He was walking with Christ for three and a half years. Best training he could get. He was, Jesus was discipling him just as he told people later in the, in the commission. Go and make disciples. Jesus was going. He was showing. Not sitting in a classroom somewhere. Not in a seminar. But actually going and doing and demonstrating. Teaching them to observe. To actually act on it and live it out. But there was something missing. Because on that night when Peter said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he did. And he was crushed. And he was so humiliated and so sad. But in that weekend, he saw the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. Perhaps even more when he recognized Jesus on Sunday, or later when Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus took that time to let him know he still loved him, he forgave him, and he could make him anew. Peter was truly converted. He experienced true righteousness by faith. But even then, it wasn't enough. Jesus said, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power from Three things high. made Peter a mighty worker, and three things will make us the workers who can finish taking the gospel to every place. Being discipled by Jesus Christ. Being broken at the foot of the cross and truly receiving righteousness by faith. And number three, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you're done with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you've spent time at that cross, then move into Acts and the rest of the Bible and say, what is the Holy Spirit really? What does it mean for me to ask for that so that I can finish the work in the world? And God will show us what we are yet waiting as he grows us up until he pours out the Holy Spirit for the final part of the latter reign. Jesus is going to come. He adds one more little thing to that, which he says, pray for labors for the harvest. Those are the four things that are coming to my mind again and again that we must seek with all our hearts so we can see the work finished. I want to close with something that has been a story that's helpful for me. Do you want to do the handouts? Yes. I'm going to hand out to you a couple things while he's telling this last very special story that really summarizes it. I'm going to put in your hand a couple of these cards. I'm just get some people to help me here. Try to take two and take two different ones. One would be for you to keep as a reminder of the website where you can learn more, but also just the great need. The second would be that you could share with someone else before you leave GYC that they could be inspired and involved in this great mission work. We'll hand out to you the handout as well. And then at the very end, we have an action card that thank you. An action card for you to check some things to put into practice what we have been talking about. So yes, thank you. If, if you can keep an ear for this story the and, then, um, and then receive the other part. Oh, Let's here see. Go. Here. You got him? Yeah. Okay, so I thank you. Uh, this the is the story that I usually tell my students when I worked at Heritage Academy and anywhere that I go and preach and do church trainings when it comes to the idea of discipleship that kind of wraps everything together. We talked about how do I know if I myself am a disciple, but the last thing that we have to understand in the topic of discipleship is huge, and it's that people need to matter to you. If people do not matter to you, you will not be good at making disciples. It's not possible. And so this is a story that God used to break my own heart and to teach me about how much people should matter to me. Five years ago, when I graduated from Arise, I got off the plane and went to a homeless shelter. It's a long story that I won't have time to go into. But one of my responsibilities in this homeless shelter was to feed sheep bread. 
feeding literal sheep, literal bread, um, because it was too cold for them to be able to have hay and it was too, the grass was dead. And during that time, I started to have a bond with them. And there's tons of biblical parallels that are going through one's mind at this stage, especially for coming fresh out of Bible college. What the real issue was is that I wasn't safe to use on real people yet. So God had to kill me and, and let me practice on animals first before I was safe to use with, on people. But there was, there was a day whenever we would feed the sheep, there would be times that the mothers would leave their little lambs because they were so hungry, they would eat, and then they recognized, I don't know where my little lamb is, and they would just start crying, blah, blah, trying to find their little lammies, and the lammies would blah back, but they sound like babies crying, and so they'd find each other, they'd get reunited, everything's good, they'd go back, and the same thing would happen tomorrow. Um, so we had one of those situations. I go out to the field and find out that one of the lambs had been injured by having a head-on collision with another lamb. They do that. They watch the older ones, and then they do the same thing. I have a whole sermon on just lessons I learned from taking care of the sheep. There's a lot of them. And this guy ended up, I go out to see what's wrong with him. I, 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 kinda, I tell him to get up. You'll never believe it. He doesn't know English. He didn't get up. So I kind of pushed him on the side, and he doesn't do much. So I grab him under the belly, and I lift him up, and his legs are just like spaghetti noodles. He's paralyzed. And my thought is coyotes are going to get the, this guy. I can't just leave him here. So I put him in a cage. I put hay in the thing, straw in there, and I was feeding him bread by hand and, and water and so on. At this point, I knew that God was teaching me lessons about his people and it needed to matter to me. So what I'm about to say next may sound crazy. I don't care. You may never see me again, so it's okay. <laughs> so I knew that they had to matter to me, so I went back to the dorm and got olive oil and I anointed this guy and I fasted and prayed because I knew that God was teaching me about his people. Sheep are illustrative of people in the Bible in that sense. And so I fasted and prayed, and three times a day I went out and just ministered to this little lamb. I'd talk to it, I'd pet it, I'd had to take the, the bedding out of the cage and put a new bedding because he'd use the bathroom on himself. And it really mattered to me, and I wanted him to get well, and I just kept wrestling with God and saying, I want him to be well. I named him Buddy. I said, Lord, I want Buddy to be better. And after about four days, I started to see his front shoulder twitch a little bit. I started to see some mobility come into his shoulder. A few more days later, and he started to get mobility in all four of his limbs. I just kept laboring for him. I kept laboring for him, kept laboring for him. I've, I knew this already, but my aunt had stage four lung cancer, and I was needing to get back to southern Illinois. I was in central Missouri at a homeless shelter there. And the time is coming for me to need to leave, but Buddy can't stand yet. And I'm, I'm just praying, God, help Buddy get better. Help Buddy get better. Help Buddy get better. And... His mobility is getting to the point now he can move all four limbs, and whenever I would pick him up under his belly and would allow him, he put his four legs down, and then I would start to release his weight back onto his legs, and his legs would kind of start to quake, and then he would fall back down on them. He wasn't quite strong enough to stand on his own, and don't miss where I'm going with this. He wasn't quite strong enough to stand on his own. And so I'm, it's the day before I leave, and I'm wrestling with Jesus like Jacob, Make Buddy better. Make Buddy better. Because I leave tomorrow, I want him to be better. The next day comes. Make Buddy better. He's not there yet. He's super close, but he's not there yet. So in a span of two weeks, he went from complete jello legs to mobility in all four legs. And everybody was telling me, it's a dumb animal. Just let it die. Who cares? And I told them to leave me alone. You have no idea what you're talking about. This doesn't affect my work performance. Just let me do it. And they did, thankfully. In two weeks, he had mobility in all four limbs when he was good for dead. Two weeks. 
I'm not saying it, it, discipleship with people works that quickly, but you get my point. So the day that I have to leave, I try one more time, and I say, God, make Buddy better, and I pick Buddy up, he puts the four legs down, I start to ease his weight down, and he stands for a little bit, and then, and then he falls down his legs again. And I was devastated. And so I asked Dave, one of the guys who worked there, I said, would you take care of Buddy? He's almost there, just keep taking care of him. He's not really a Christian, but that's all I had. I go back home, and try, I'm homeless now in southern Illinois trying to figure things out, and two weeks go by, and maybe 10 days, and I text the guy who was the foreman of the work crew that we worked with, and I said, hey, how's Buddy doing? And the response I got was, sorry, Buddy died. And I immediately knew why. I left. And I praised God for the fact that this wasn't a soul for the kingdom of heaven. It was an animal. A random animal in a field in Missouri. Who cares in the long run, right? But God taught me a lesson that I never forgot going into ministry and as a Bible worker. People need to matter to you. And discipleship really is you laying down your life for someone until they can stand on their own spiritually. And it takes as long as it takes. You are not collecting baseball cards. You are not building a model airplane. You are laboring for the souls for whom Christ died. Value them as he valued them. It should matter to you. Because they matter to him. If he can make me care about a dumb animal, he can make you care about people. But through that lesson, I never, ever, ever forgot that. Please make sure that you're in it to win it with these folks. I've got, friend, I've got a friend of mine that I went to rise with who's wrestled right now. who's had ups and downs in some of his spiritual battles, but I will not give up on him. In the same way that you would never give up on your children, you just gave birth to a spiritual child, and it needs you until it can stand on its own spiritually. And had my, had my dad not endured for me, I would not be here in front of you today. I was a mess and for years. People need you. Um, there are some resources that we have. Um, one, we're starting a Facebook group to do a continued dialogue from what we have done here throughout the course of this week. If you missed any of the seminars, GYC is going to upload the audio and the handouts for all the seminars. We've already given them to them. If you have the GYC app, the handouts are already actually on the seminars. They're already there. So you can have access to all the stuff. The things that we weren't able to cover on how to be a disciple, they're in your handout that you got today. The Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash reach the world next door. Um, Scott and I both have Facebook. We are the administrators for the group. We're going to send an email on these cards that you have before you whenever we send the email out. It's a web link directly to it. If you want to start this process, and I pray that you do, of investing in people locally, and you just want to talk about it and inspire each other, we wanted a venue where you could be as iron, sharpening iron, and encouraging one another as you serve in your various locations. So that's one way to continue the dialogue. ReachTheWorldNextDoor.com is full of tremendous resources, tons more resources than we covered in the seminar here. The My Language, My Life, again, a hundred languages of Seventh-day Adventist materials all in one place. Uh, those cards in the back of the room. And, um, yeah, go ahead. Just, just want to invite you to make a very specific, prayerful commitment of some sort. Could have nothing to do with what we're suggesting, but something the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart right now. Um, so we'd like to just take a moment of quiet. You have a paper in front of you that talks about some options. Um, to just go and make a friend over the next six months with someone of a different background. That's not hard. In fact, it's really, really fun. Mm -hmm. Very, very easy. And, and second part is to pray at the website. There's some good resources that you could do with a group or with your family and family worships. 
Um, the third one mentioned here is a kit. We have a training kit that covers um, 16, 16 sessions together, which may sound like a lot, but it takes a lot, as we just showed, to really go out and disciple the nations. But when you do it as a group together, it's much more fun, much more effective. So it has video presentations. It has a leader's guide so you know exactly what to do. It's got a book called a booklet called Lessons from My Favorite Missionary, which most likely I think you can guess who that would be, <laughs> and, um, and a prayer guide. So those we have available at the website um, that you can order, or if you'd rather make that decision to go and do something, we have some copies that tonight at the ASAP Ministries booth you are welcome to have for free if you're going to go back and use them and lead a group to go out and do. So if you make that check there and you go and say tonight, Pastor Scott said I could come and get a free copy of this, the kit, that will be available for those who will go and put it into practice. But as I mentioned, Jesus has something to say to each of us today. So let's take a moment before him and ask him two things. Lord, what one area would you have me take a forward step on as far as me being your disciple in 2016? Let him call your heart in some of the areas you've heard. Or make a commitment to pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Secondly, Lord, what would you have me do to disciple someone who is an unreached international? What would you have me do in my community for your glory? Let's just pause and, and quietly, and then I'll close with prayer. Father in heaven, you have taught us to pray, search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The way everlasting is the way that Jesus trod. It is a life of holiness lived totally to God and then secondly in love for other people. And it is a path that is absolutely impossible in our own strength. And so, Lord, we come confessing to you that we have not walked as disciples of Jesus, or at least we have been disciples like Peter, failing and falling, slipping beneath the waves too often. Thank you that you are merciful. Thank you that you are the great forgiving Savior. You are the one who reaches your hand down and picks us up and sets us back up on solid water and helps us to walk side by side with you. Lord, we want more than that. We want that walking. We want that victory. And we want to be your tools, your messengers, your disciple makers, multiplying, not just leading a few, but helping them to multiply it unto the coming of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we plead that you would keep leading us forward, that we would experience more of the cross, that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that we would make disciples as Christ did. Lord, make us what you want us to be. Take our, our small commitments to you, Lord, and help us to be faithful to them by your strength. And may we be able to see the work finished in our lifetime for the glory of God, because you told us how to do it, you showed us how, and most of all, you made it possible through us. 
Thank you, Father. Bless each person here. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.